0: And thanks for coming out tonight. On this day that we call Good Friday, it's appropriate. Certainly the result of the events of this day are the best. Uh, But perhaps a more appropriate moniker for this day is worst day ever. Because it's the day that God himself, who became flesh and dwelt among us, gave his life so that we might live. Now this is a day for contemplation, a day of commemoration. On Easter, which I pray you come back to in a couple days, we'll have a wild celebration because our savior who dies today raises from the grave and lives forevermore. But on this day, we remember. I love that song they just sang. I grew up singing it in the church that I went to. Anybody else? Some of us did. I remember being confused as a kid though. What's up with the blood? Why is everything about blood? Everything's blood around here. We took communion and the pastor said these words from 1 Corinthians. He said in the same way that Jesus also took the cup after supper and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you remember it in remembrance of me. We're gonna do that later tonight. Fittingly so on this day that Jesus shed his blood. That verse holds uh, two important concepts to the Christian faith. Covenant and blood. Jesus announced a new covenant. It was in his blood. It was until later in life that I understood blood was emblematic, symbolic of the death that is required for the remission of sins. See, when sin entered the world, death came with it. Sin causes death. The wages of sin is death. And if sin is to be erased, to be reconciled, a death must be given for that death. We see the first death in the garden. Some people think it's Cain and Abel. It's not. God slays some animals in Genesis 3.20 so that he can take the skins from them and cover the humans uh, who were lost in sin and shame. It moves forward to where Jesus actually is commemorating uh, another uh, use of blood in the story of God's people. He's at the Seder feast when he uh, changes the game and takes the old covenant and changes it to the new. He's, he's, he's with his friends as they're commemorating what happened in Exodus 12 where Israel has gone through nine plagues. The 10th is coming. It's the plague of the firstborn son, the, the sons of Egypt, the firstborn sons will die and the, the Israelites were instructed by God, if you want to forego this judgment, this righteous judgment of mine and you put some blood on the doorpost, you kill a lamb and that blood, that symbol of the death that was given will keep you from the death that I'm bringing. So we Read earlier, Katie read those verses from the book of Hebrews, a book I, I've, I've grown to love. I've studied it for the last year with a life group that I'm in. It's, uh, uh, it's hard for us to discern who wrote it, but we know exactly who it was written to. It was written to a bunch of Jewish Christians who were thinking of leaving the fold. They had believed in Christ, but things had gotten too difficult, and they were considering heading back to this old covenant that they had grown up in. The writer of Hebrews says, how can you leave so great a salvation? How can you do this? And argues throughout its pages for the supremacy of Christ over the old covenant that the Jews had come from. In Hebrews 9, you can read this when you get home, uh, verses 1 through 10 describe that old covenant. It talks about the high priest going into the Holy of Holies. and, And once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he would bring the sacrifice Uh, the blood of an animal, and, and atone for the sins of Israel from that past year. But later on in those first 10 verses, it talks about how the old covenant is ineffective. It's inefficient. It doesn't cover all the sins. Don't have time to go into that. But it doesn't last but for a year, and you have to go over and over again to have your sins cleansed. That's why I'm so grateful that the writer of Hebrews in our scriptures and all kinds of places reminds us of what Jesus has done for us on this day. It says in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter nine that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, referring to this new covenant. Isn't that great? Jesus isn't just the sacrifice that is given so that we might have forgiveness of sin. He's also the administrator. He's the high priest who goes before our heavenly father as an advocate for us. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He's referring to the, the tabernacle tent, which became later the temple in the, the time of, of this writing. But he's saying, listen, Jesus didn't stop at what man had made here on earth as the, as the, the home, the place of God in our plane, on our plane. He he went right past what man had made with their own hands, and he entered into the very courtroom of God the Father as our high priest. In verse 12, it says this, he he entered once for all into the holiest of places, not by means of the blood of goats and, and calves, not by animal sacrifices, but by the means of his own sacrifice, his own life being given up for us. And when he did this, here's the the good news of Good Friday. His death secured for us an eternal, not temporal, not once a year, over and over again having to sacrifice, but an eternal redemption that is ours. It says in verse fifteen as I close, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. Everybody knows what a mediator is, right? It's the go between. It's it's the the door opener. I I used to go to, uh, you know, sporting events with friends and and someone would buy the tickets and everybody would agree to meet at a certain place and we would all get excited to go to the game. But invariably, the guy who would get the tickets would be the last guy there. Has anybody been to this game? Everybody else is standing outside the gate just waiting to go enjoy. The first inning's already started or whatever's happening. And then finally, the guy's like, I'm so sorry, the baby, blah, 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 shut up, give me my ticket, let me in. In a very loose fashion, Jesus has let us in. He's been the mediator of this new covenant that he has secured in his blood, in his death, and it is ours by his grace to receive. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under that first covenant. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Does that just boggle your minds? We're going to sing this song next, and it's a question. How can it be? I can't tell you how many times as I enter into you know, worship or into prayer and I contemplate who I am and who God is, how that question just rattles around my head. How can this be that God would have anything to do with me, that he would love me so much that he would give his son to die for me? How can it be? This is a time of contemplation. As we sing this song, ask the question.
1: How can it be? You can be seated. So when Jesus and the apostles refer to the scriptures, they have in mind the Old Testament. They have in mind that first half of your Bible that is so bewildering to so many of us when we're being honest with ourselves, the Old Testament very often feels more like a puzzle that we can't quite put together. We, we know certain stories from it, maybe David and Goliath, maybe the story of creation in Adam and Eve, but how this points to Christ is beyond us. And yet, the testimony of both Jesus and the apostles again and again and again is that the Old Testament scriptures bear witness to the finished work of Jesus. And if we would only read them, and if Jesus' contemporaries had only read them with fresh eyes, they would see that the Old Testament is drawing them towards the work of Christ. As I reflect on Good Friday and the darkness of this day, I'm reminded of the passage that Katie just read for us. It's a particularly strange encounter between Yahweh and Abraham. In the early portion of our passage, God reiterates his promise to Abraham that he will have descendants that outnumber the stars in the sky, that his descendants will be given the land of Canaan, that in him and in his family, all the nations of the world will be blessed. But what we know from earlier in Genesis is that Abraham, at the time of his first encounter with Yahweh, is already 75 years old. His wife is similar in age. And so this promise feels impossible. And so he asks God, how do I know? How do I know that you will make good on your promise? In the middle of the chapter, the part that we mercifully skipped over, God gives Abraham elaborate instructions. He says, take for yourself a number of livestock, a number of animals, cut them in half and split the body in this field where you find yourself. And so Abraham does so. We're told that he spends the whole day chasing away the vultures that are trying to eat the carcasses, which is bleak, it's morbid, it strikes us as odd. But the early readers of Genesis would have known exactly what was going on. It's this term that Mark introduced to us in his talk just a few minutes ago. God is entering into a covenant with Abraham. Covenants in the ancient world were a way in which kings and rulers would begin agreements with those who were beneath them. Covenants came with the promise of blessing. If you keep the terms of this promise, here is how you will be blessed. But covenants also came with curses. If you break the terms of our agreement, here are the consequences. And normally the consequences were acted out in elaborate and graphic ways. This is one such example. There's extra-biblical stories of people entering into covenants like this. They cut the animals in half, they spread the two pieces of the body far enough apart for two people to pass through, and then they walk in between the pieces, as if to say, if one of us breaks this agreement, may we be torn to pieces just like these animals. Abraham says, how do I know? How do I know that you will make good on your promises to me to bless the nations, to give me offspring? And God says, I'll show you, I'll enter into a covenant with you. Cut the animals in half and wait. And so Abraham waits. He waits all day. And we come to the second half of what Katie read for us. That darkness fell. A great and dreadful darkness, the Bible says. Abraham fell asleep and that was when he saw it. He saw a pot filled with fire. The Hebrew here is the same word for the flaming pillar. The presence of God that led Israel through the wilderness. It's the same term for the presence of God that descended on Mount Sinai. He sees a pot of fire, the very presence of God, pass between the pieces. Alone. Without Abraham beside him. As if to say that the fulfillment of this promise will not depend on Abraham's faithfulness. To to be sure, God will ask things of Abraham. But the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham will depend on God and God alone. And God passes through the pieces. He takes the curse upon himself and says, If this covenant is broken, let me be torn to pieces, just as these animals are. It doesn't make a lot of sense how that would work. In the Old Testament, God doesn't have a body, God is spirit. He's without physicality. And yet, 2,000 years ago, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Son of God takes on flesh. The eternal word unites himself to our human nature, and on Good Friday, the riddle of Abraham's vision begins to make sense. Because on the hill of Golgotha, God himself in human flesh is torn to pieces and hung from a tree to bear the curse that was promised for those who broke the covenant. The curse that should have fallen on us, he takes on himself because he passed through the pieces. We're told that at the hour of Jesus' death, darkness covered the land, a pervasive darkness. I don't think that's accidental. This is exactly what Abraham sees when God passes between the pieces, a darkness that falls on Abraham in his vision. Jesus once said to the Pharisees that Abraham would rejoice to see his day, that if Abraham had lived to see what you all were seeing, he would rejoice. Perhaps this is portion of what Jesus means because at Golgotha he is torn apart like the animals that Abraham laid out all those years ago but it's not because of anything Jesus has done God has upheld his end of the covenant we're the ones who've broken it and yet in his infinite kindness he takes on himself the curse that belongs to us On the cross, the faithful God of Israel bears the punishment of sin so that his faithless people, you and I, can go free. As we continue to think about the cross, I want to invite you to stand let's worship in response to God's word. So Good Friday, the day that we're celebrating today, as well as Easter Sunday, our Probably the most famous holidays in what's known as the Christian year or the liturgical calendar. Even for people who aren't believers, they at least have some sense that this day is important to Christians, though they might not know why. But there are plenty of other days in the so called Christian year that none of us might be familiar with, plenty of other holidays and festivals and feasts that are celebrated. While we may not be familiar with them, there are millions of Christians around the world who celebrate them faithfully year in and year out. One of those days is Transfiguration Sunday, in which the church remembers the event that Katie just read for us. It's one of the strangest accounts in the Gospels. We're told that Jesus took three disciples, Peter, James and John, his inner circle, and he led them up a mountain. And at some point along the way, suddenly his countenance changed. His face became dazzling. His clothes became white as snow. He was hard to look at. He was glowing so brightly. And there appeared next to him two figures on either side, Moses and Elijah, speaking of what was to come. This isn't the first time that God has appeared on a mountain. You might remember in the book of Exodus that Moses encountered the living God on Mount Sinai. But he asked, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord said, you can't look on me and live. And so he hid Moses in the cleft of a rock. Moses was only able to see the glory passing by. He couldn't look directly into the face of God. It would have killed him. Likewise, Elijah in 1 Kings, as he's running from Queen Jezebel, comes back to Mount Sinai. It's come to be known as Mount Horeb in his day. He climbs to the mountain, angry with God. And God descends onto the mountain. And Elijah, like Moses, is hiding in the cleft of a rock. And when God finally approaches the mountain, Elijah covers his face because he knows that like Moses, he can't look at the face of God, it'll kill him. Neither of them see the face of God in their own day on the mountain until the transfiguration because both of them appear and they are able to look at the face of God in the person of Jesus. They are finally able to behold the glory of God in the incarnate Christ. But it's not the last time that God will reveal himself on a mountain either. Think about what the disciples see. They see Jesus. His face becomes dazzling white. He's glowing with the glory of God. His clothes are white. Moses and Elijah on either side. When Peter, as he often does, says something stupid, the father stops him and says, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Only a couple chapters later, Peter, who woke up so quickly when the glory of God descended, won't be able to keep his eyes open in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, who was so confident at the Mount of Transfiguration, will flee in terror. James will be missing in action. And only John will stand at the foot of the cross on a different mountain. Jesus is still there. But rather than Moses and Elijah on either side, it's two thieves that are reviling him. Rather than Jesus' face being dazzling like the sun, it's been disfigured beyond recognition. Rather than his clothes being pure and white as snow, his clothes are stained in his own blood. Rather than the father... Contradicting the crowds that mock him as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words of Psalm 22 the heavens are silent and the silence is deafening. The cross and the transfiguration are two sides of the same coin. The transfiguration is a shadow of the cross the transfiguration, we see the glory of Christ, and at the cross, we see Christ's humiliation for our sin. But far too often, we're like Peter. We're perfectly content to celebrate Jesus in all his glory, shining like the sun, but we are unwilling to gaze at Jesus in his agony, marred beyond all recognition. We want a transfigured Jesus, not a crucified one but you can't have one without the other. You can't have the Jesus of the transfiguration without the Christ of the cross. Martin Luther said it like this, it's not sufficient for anyone and it does him no good to recognize God in his glory and majesty unless he also recognizes him in his humility and shame on the cross. He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. The story of Jesus passes through a bloody cross, and if we're going to tell the story of the gospel, in order to be faithful to that story, we have to linger on Good Friday. But I hope you know that the story of Jesus doesn't end there. It ends with resurrection power. It ends with transfigured glory. It ends with the same face that was beaten beyond recognition Shining once again brighter than the sun. And yet, Good Friday is not Easter Sunday. Good Friday is a time in which we reflect on the mystery of God hidden in suffering. And so, it's with that in mind that we as a church are going to approach the Lord's table together in this next portion of our evening as we reflect on Christ's body broken and his blood shed. We're gonna be singing another song in response to the cross and I wanna invite you to examine yourself and make sure that you're walking with the Lord and towards the end of this song, open up your communion elements. And at that time, Mark will come up and he'll lead us in the Lord's Supper. But for now, would you stand? Would you sing? Would you reflect on the mystery of the cross with us?
0: As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, just marked by that last song. Now we're just saying that we want uh, God to lead us to his heart. That we want to have his heart instead of ours. I'm so grateful that we uh, get to receive from him his life and exchange it for ours. And Jesus initiated this whole covenant, this whole process when he sat with his friends that night in that room. Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, do we just take a second and in our hearts, just bow our heads, whatever God leads us to thank him for, whether it's Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ above me, Christ below me, Christ in life, Christ in death. Let's just pause and thank our God for our Savior, Jesus Christ. When he had given thanks, he, he broke that bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way that night, he also took a cup and. After supper, he said this to his friends. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we come before you a people undeserving. Uh, We are... Wretched, your scripture tells us, Uh, wretched and blind, poor, Uh, we have nothing uh, to give to you. We can never earn your grace or deserve your grace. And still you sent Jesus to die for us so that we might have life. We extol you tonight. We, We praise your name. How can it be that you would do this? I don't know, but I am so grateful that you did. Thank you for interceding on our behalf where we never could. For your grace, for your love, for your mercy. We say thanks. and We say together in the name of our Savior and our Lord the resurrected Christ, in Jesus' name, we say, amen. We're going to continue to sing tonight. Uh, Join us as we sing that song that we sang before communion again.
1: As we come to the end of our time together this Good Friday, I'm reminded of the words that my heart is always drawn to every Good Friday. They come from St. Augustine in the 4th century as he reflects on the mystery of our faith. He describes Christianity like this way, in this way, man's maker was made man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness. The teacher beaten by whips, the foundation suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. The great mystery that sits at the heart of Good Friday is this. The eternal Son of God, without ceasing to be all that he is, became what we are, fully human. And that means that on the cross, Jesus endured all that comes with human death. That means that he drew a final breath. That means that his pulse grew faint. That means that the neurons stopped firing. That means that the heart that had begun to beat only six weeks into the Virgin Mary's conception finally stopped beating. And this is where our time together ends, in the darkness of Good Friday, where creation groaned as its maker's heart gave out. Tomorrow we enter into Holy Saturday, a time of waiting and reflecting on Jesus' day in the grave. But together, we await Easter Sunday, when his heart will beat again.